Okay, here's the Ty Cobb quote that is amazing. Donald Trump's former lawyer. I think this original indictment was engineered to last a thousand years. And now this superseding indictment will last in antiquity. This is such a tight case. The evidence is so overwhelming. (laughs) It does get kind of hard at a certain point for him to deny the fact that there's video, there's audio, there's this, there's that. What isn't there? There's everything. What I love is like the way that these people talk to each other. It's like out of a third-rate mobster movie. I mean, you know, the boss wants you to do this, buddy. And then the other guy says, well, I'm not sure I'm allowed to do it. And he says, but the boss wants you to do it. I'm just sort of struck by history repeating itself. Uh, you know, it's always the cover-up that, that, that really cooks the people. And I mean, and this is, to me, it's so so reminiscent of the tapes in Watergate. And here, you, but the difference is you've now got the boss telling Rosemary Wood to uh, cut that bit out. Yeah. So it's hard to see your way out of this one. Yeah. My favorite part from that audio is when he says, can we get some coats in here? <laughs> well, and by the way, in the audio, it's in Bedminster, New Jersey at his private club. If you actually go and read the Mark Meadows ghostwritten book, they have this vivid description of it. The children playing in the pool are clearly uh, audible to the people sitting in the room discussing the secret uh, war plans for Iran. I mean, talk about the opposite of secure. This is some indictment. It's uh, it, 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 <laughs> this it is, is some indictment. This is some that is some pig. <laughs> that is some pig. <laughs> Woo! Welcome to the political scene, a weekly discussion from the New Yorker about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined by my colleagues Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser. Hi, Jane, and hi, Susan. Hi, Evan. Hey there, great to be with you guys. We've only followed where the information has taken us. But this is rising to the level of impeachment inquiry. That was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking Monday on Fox News about Hunter Biden and the prospect of Congress beginning impeachment proceedings against President Biden. The reason? This president has also used something we have not seen since Richard Nixon, used the weaponization of government to benefit his family and deny Congress the ability to have the oversight. The three of us, frankly, had some reservations about even discussing the political drama around Hunter Biden this week. So much of what we hear about the president's son seems to have little to do with actual facts and everything to do with efforts to attack President Biden ahead of the 2024 election. But at the same time, Hunter Biden has, like many relatives of past presidents, used his name and connections for personal gain and caused political headaches for his father. So how should we think about all the news around Hunter Biden? What is worth discussing and investigating and what isn't? Today, we're going to try to parse that out. We're also going to look at how political scandals, broadly defined, can be manufactured and propagated in Washington, sometimes out of whole cloth. Why do some take hold while others become punchlines? And is there any way to put the fake ones to rest? Jane, I remember a conversation I had with our friend and boss, David Remnick, not too long ago, uh, before the 22 midterm elections, in which he said, if they win, what happens? I said, I suspect they're going to try to impeach Biden. And he said, for what? And I said, I'm not sure that's the question that's foremost in their minds. Kevin McCarthy has 
in his capacity as uh, House Speaker, has has really been skeptical about impeaching Biden, despite calls from some House Republicans. So what caused McCarthy's, uh, shall we say, change of mind to make him impeachment curious? I mean, I think, you know, we've just been talking about one of the things that's changed. The, the, the danger is growing. The legal problems are growing so much for Trump that there's an effort to try to create a, a counter scandal. Um, and there is in Washington a sort of a, a scandal industrial complex that helps cook up scandals. And, and, and then there's, you know, there are, as in almost every scandal, no matter how thin the evidence, there's usually some evidence there. There's something that, that to work with. And here, the thing you can work with is Hunter Biden, who seems to have done some sort of... Uh, you know, really questionable things in terms of how he was wheeling and dealing in order to sort of profit off of his father's fame and public post. Um, and so it's probably not really a legitimate legal issue, but it works for politics in order to take the limelight off of the Trump scandals and try to make it look like the Biden family is just as plagued. Susan, for listeners who don't know, who haven't been following every detail, what exactly is the Republican case for impeaching Joe Biden? <laughs> well, I think uh, I think we don't know the answer yet uh, to that. First of all, it is really a remarkable situation where you have the impeachment movement before the crimes are, are outlined. And in fact, the argument at this point, as I understand it as well, maybe we need to launch an impeachment inquiry in order to get the uh, investigative chops and information that we would ultimately need to pursue impeachment. And so, you know, we'll see if they actually follow through with it. So that's number one. Number two, what exactly would they impeach Biden for? The allegations are kind of a swirl, an amorphous swirl at this moment in time surrounding the question of, you know, what exactly was Joe Biden's role? You can't impeach the president's son, right? He's not elected to anything. And so it has to be a very explicit link to something that Joe Biden actually did wrong. And by the way, potentially while he was in office or connected to his official duties in some way, there's no indication whatsoever uh, of that actually happening. In fact, uh, the effort so far by the new House Republican majority to investigate these links have not produced a kind of smoking gun witness or direct links between Hunter Biden's influence peddling and the president. What has happened, uh, you know, is a lot of legal maneuverings and a Justice Department investigation of Hunter Biden. And we can talk about that because that sort of exploded back into the headlines this week. But none of that has anything to do, actually, with Joe Biden. Yeah, and I think it, that's actually one of the things that's worth pointing out to people. Let's specify exactly what happened actually this week, Susan. I mean, there Hunter Biden was in court in Delaware. Uh, why was he there? What was that case about? So there's been a five-year-long investigation of Hunter Biden. Much of it has revolved around questions involving his nonpayment of taxes, his actions. I mean, it is, as Jean said, a very tawdry and questionable, not only single scandal, but just these, you know, kind of uh, salacious personal elements, extramarital affairs, 
cocaine addiction, a man spiraling out of control in many ways, not paying his taxes, allegedly, all these things. So what happened is that in June, after years of this investigation by a Trump-appointed uh, federal prosecutor, I should point out, in the Biden's home state of Delaware, uh, a plea agreement was announced in which looked like a great sort of relief to the Biden family. And there was going to be essentially two misdemeanor guilty pleas involving uh, tax charges, non-payment of taxes. And then there was going to be a separate felony gun charge that was going to be essentially uh, wiped off the books as long as Hunter Biden went through a court-approved uh, process. So they show up in what usually would be a, a relatively pro forma federal courtroom for a federal judge to bless this plea agreement this Wednesday, and it didn't go according to plan. The judge refused to accept the plea agreement, and it appeared that the prosecution and the defense had very different definitions of what they had actually agreed to. So now it's in a state of suspended animation. We don't know if there will be a plea deal or not. I mean, the question, I mean, for me, I think it was sort of an incredibly interesting courtroom scene. It's it's unusual to have this kind of open confrontation where you have a judge overseeing it who was appointed by Trump, who seems to share some of the Trump world skepticism about this, this uh, plea agreement. And, and the question that is at the heart of it is whether, uh, I think it's whether Hunter Biden gets a kind of an immunity moving on to the future. And his side thought that he was getting sort of full immunity. And the other side is saying, no, we're still investigating him and there may be more. And why would they still be investigating him? Well, I mean, in the world of the right-wing ecosystem, they think that, you know, that Hunter Biden is sort of the, just the heart of some kind of, you know, huge political and financial scandal that's international. That, I think that's the thing, you know, that people want to try to really understand here. I mean, if you're just listening and you're trying to say, just tell me what is real and what is fake here. Susan, this this idea that there is essentially Hunter Biden going out into the world and acting as a front or a proxy for his father's business dealings, either in the vice presidency or after, is there anything to that narrative? Is there anything that reporters you think should be looking into or is it at this point uh, essentially a, a, a hallucination? Evan, thank you for framing it in that way, because I think, you know, there's been a reluctance because it's become such a cause celeb in the kind of right wing media ecosphere. Uh, you know, Hunter Biden is literally a mantra on Fox News at all times. It is it is a surround sound. It is uh, I you're not going to believe this quote, but I, I'll throw it out there because I think it's very relevant to this conversation that we're trying to have. Elise Stefanik who is now the number three ranking Republican in the House of Representatives on Thursday went on television the same day uh, that it looked like Trump, you know, was going to get indicted for these post-2020 election crimes. She went on TV and she said, Republicans may impeach Biden because of a scandal and allegations that are, quote, the biggest political scandal of my lifetime and perhaps the last century and perhaps ever. This is what Elise Stefanik, the third ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, said. She then went on to promise, quote, all of the facts while actually offering no facts at all. And so that's the dilemma that we find ourselves in. There are these allegations right now uh, that aren't nobody really cares about, you know, Hunter Biden's taxes, except, you know, he's he's already agreed to repay them and to plead guilty. The issue here is, do they have anything on Joe Biden. What we've heard from House Republicans is how is it that this cocaine addict screw up 
Hunter Biden is being paid millions of dollars by foreign entities, including Chinese-owned corporations, uh, including the famous uh, Burisma Energy Company in Ukraine, which Hunter Biden was on the board. And of course, the question is, what was he doing there but selling his father's name? And was he selling anything more specific? There are allegations that House Republicans have aired that he put his father on the phone with his business associates when his father was the vice president. There are allegedly text messages in which he is throwing around his father's name uh, in, in, in connection with these questionable business dealings. This is the kind of miasma in which the Republicans are throwing out allegations. They are, and we should stress that, not only unproven, but there has been no even credible witness to emerge under oath to say that they have evidence definitively linking Joe Biden with Hunter Biden's activities. What I wanted to ask you, Evan, is, I mean, if Hunter Biden is working with a Chinese company, um, and isn't he, in essence, sort of fronting for the Chinese government? Is it possible that he could be working, you know, involved in a Chinese company without without the government of China having some sort of, um, you know, approval of this? Well, uh, as is the case with many of the items we've been talking about, it comes down to the details. You know, the case that he was specifically involved with, the company he was involved with, which has now kind of come unraveled, the key person who he was dealing with, in fact, ended up getting arrested by the Chinese government, is now somebody who uh, ended up on the wrong end of whatever relationships he had with the state. But I think the underlying point is exceedingly clear. There is no question what the point of all of these deals were. Foreign governments and foreign people and foreign businesses were trying to get close to Joe Biden. And so what really ends up mattering is not whether Hunter Biden was open to that idea and was taking their checks. We know he was. It's whether, in fact, there was any link to Joe Biden. And that's that's the thing to look for. And that's the piece that so far has been, shall we say, elusive. There is no evidence yet that there has been any connection that would substantiate that. In fact, it's gotten to the point now, guys, where you're starting to hear some Republicans begin to question whether this is good politics. There was an interesting piece this week in Politico. It quoted a Republican strategist saying that the focus, the obsession on Hunter, quote, smells like Benghazi, meaning, as he put it, Republicans are trying desperately to turn this into an issue. They're saying we've got a witness coming. There's more next week. It's a kind of soap opera. Tune in next week. But in the end, it doesn't end up materializing either as a substantive case and uh, it doesn't actually deliver political dividends. That's one of the things I'm curious about. Do you get the sense that this is something that Americans are sitting around that kitchen table talking about? Well, you know, Evan, I was really struck, as you were, uh, by the fact that there are some Republicans already willing to question this as a political strategy. Uh, There was a congressman this week, no friend of Joe Biden's, who who even went on uh, CNN and and called McCarthy's floating of impeachment uh, nothing more than, quote, impeachment theater. I think that was the term that Ken Buck used. And I think it's a good term because this is political theater. Benghazi is another very resonant example. In fact, because, you know, it, it actually was Kevin McCarthy who got in trouble for sort of seeing the quiet part out loud back when they were trying to use Benghazi to get Hillary Clinton, which he basically admitted in a very inappropriate uh, comment 
one. It didn't really stick. Uh, that wasn't the reason ultimately that that Hillary Clinton went went down to defeat in 2016. And just the overheated claims also really remind me of that. That quote from Elise Stefanik that I had about this being the greatest political scandal ever. There was a really famous moment during the Benghazi hearings in uh, 2016 when Mike Pompeo, future Donald Trump Secretary of State, then a, a Republican congressman, he went on TV and was widely mocked for seeing that Benghazi scandal uh, was actually bigger than Watergate, uh, which nobody ever actually thought. And um, it, it, the overheated rhetoric. I hope you guys are right. I, I actually think having turned on Fox News recently, it is there is an alternative universe in this country and and maybe a third of it of the country is is tuning into it and and is maybe buying a lot of it and it suggests that the biden family is like the cousinostra um and and you know even if these scandals do, and the hearings don't deliver it's kind of doesn't matter because what it does is it 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 smears their reputations and it makes a lot of people in the country throw up their hands and say oh they're all just criminals and and the, and I think that's kind of the 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 end is to sort of even the score and and taint people's uh sense of idealism and support for you know sort of government in the country I think that it does have an effect right so but Jane I think we agree with you to be clear Impeachment theater, the goal of the theater is exactly what you suggest, right? It's to undermine the confidence, it's to create a false equivalence, it's to make it so that there's an inherent skepticism uh, about any kind of law enforcement uh, proceedings against politicians, right, in the country. But it also reinforces the idea, even more than in 2016, that Americans live in separate media and political realities. And so, you know, it's very unlikely to break through potentially to a broader audience at this point uh, in the absence of some big new investigative breakthrough or revelation about Hunter Biden. But it absolutely creates a compelling alternate narrative for the most fervent Republican voters who right now, uh, I'm sure that Republican strategists are very concerned, uh, you know, about the Trump cases and, you know, will that be even too much, even for the most loyal Republicans? And so this timing, I think, is very important for speaking to the core Republican base. And that's who fundamentally that Fox ecosystem, <laughs> you know, there's not a ton of liberal Democrats and even uh, genuinely independent voters who are tuning in for this sort of 24 hours a day Hunter Biden propaganda on Fox News. But I think you're right that it's absolutely aimed at creating uh, a very important counter narrative for a core part of the Republican electorate in this country. And I, I suspect that you're right, that it's going to be very effective with that group of voters. All right, let's take a quick break. And then we're going to talk about how scandals are manufactured and propagated in Washington and what's at stake if we keep lowering the bar for presidential impeachment. Biden, needless to say, is not the only example in history of a president's family being the source of political headaches. Are there other examples of presidential family drama that you uh, have on the mind as that, that might help us think about what's going on with Hunter Biden? Honestly, I, I mean, I have to say, I think the, the ones that don't have scandals are the exception to the rule at this point, um, at least in, the, in modern <laughs> presidential history. Um, and you can go back uh, as far as you want. You can go back to Jimmy Carter and his, his brother, Billy Carter, who was 
was sort of uh, trying to make money off of him and and dealing with foreign. I think the relatives who are dealing with foreign powers, those are the ones that are are especially sleazy, really. But and it's a bipartisan situation, um, and I think we can you know condemn them all. But uh, there was Roger Clinton. There was in George H.W. Bush's presidency, let us not forget his sons. You had Neil Bush, who um, somehow got on the board of Silverado Bank in Colorado and had, I would say, rather dubious qualifications for that and was making a ton of money off of it. And then let's not forget the son who became the president, George W. Bush, who was the head of Harkin Energy um, and uh, who were the investors in that? They were Middle Eastern, sort of really sort of shady characters who wanted to get access to the U.S. government. I mean, this goes this goes on and on. And then, of course, I mean, really, let us not forget the Trump family. Um, you know, did uh, is there some reason that Ivanka Trump should have gotten? you know, special access to the Chinese market, right, as her father was having a state dinner for the Chinese government? It was a miraculous coincidence. I do remember that one. <laughs> Susan, I, I, I want to hear your sense of this, but I, I have to say when I was going back and looking at the history of all this stuff, I'd forgotten about one of them that really does stand out, which is that in 1973, during the Watergate investigation, the Washington Post reported that Richard Nixon ordered the phone of his own brother, Donald, tapped because he was concerned <laughs> that Donald's various financial activities would bring embarrassment on the administration. I have to say that is a family matter of a particular kind I haven't heard before. What stands out for you, Susan? Do you have a, a particular case, a particular family and administration that leaps to mind? Well, I think, you know, Jane is right that, uh, you know, the family that doesn't have a presidential family that doesn't have a scandal like this in modern times is the standout. And actually, in that regard, the Obamas really are notable for uh, the general lack of scandal that, you know, overshadowed that administration. And I can't think of any real examples of a family-specific scandal and, and this foreign influence peddling. But look, there is an elephant in the room here, a big, fat, gigantic elephant, and that is definitely, the in modern times, the Trump family. Uh, the most notable recent example is, I, for my money, the $2 billion investment, uh, you know, in Jared Kushner's uh, uh, private equity fund that he's raised since leaving office. And I, to me, this is really extraordinary. Uh, it has been reported by the New York Times and others that it was at the, the personal order of the, the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, you know, recall the enormous number of official favors uh, spearheaded while Trump was in office by Jared Kushner. He was uh, the princeling who dealt with his fellow princeling, MBS. Remember that after uh, the Saudi government led by MBS was accused of ordering the murder and even dismemberment of a Saudi dissident and Washington Post columnist, Jamal Khashoggi. It was uh, Kushner and Trump who refused to publicly uh, castigate or even blame MBS for it, who uh, made sure that relations did not rupture with the Saudis. Uh, and in fact, Jared Kushner was in the Middle East 
coming flying back on the day of January 6th itself, already organizing the future fund that he would be raising. And there's a serious set of questions that have been raised. As far as I know, they've not been investigated about uh, whether there was an entangling of the official work uh, that Kushner was doing in the Trump White House and uh, his post-White House um uh, money raising and business dealings with Middle East entities. So to me, that is probably the the most salient. And by the way, ongoing question uh, remaining around the Trump White House. Uh, we don't know what we don't know, but it's it's so blatant. And it's another example, I think, of why it's so important for Republicans right now to have this whataboutism, because it means that in response to any questions about the Trump family, they can simply raise Hunter Biden. Right. And I mean, and really, if you go back to how did we get into this particular mess right now? I mean, and it it, it really, the origin goes back to uh, Trump's looking at his reelection campaign and trying to figure out how he can tarnish the reputation of the Biden family so that it will inoculate his family against the sort of corruption charges that we're accumulating around it. So that's where this whole Burisma story first emanates from. And it, remember, and that's what the, the Trump's first impeachment is about, his, his effort to try to create a, a legal investigation of Hunter Biden in or, for political purposes. He was trying to do that in order to help his own reelection effort, and the thing fell apart. It didn't work, but it 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 was from the start a sort of a, a political gambit on the part of Trump to try to even the score. And that instinct to try to even the score, to try to gin something up that can distract attention, is uh, is something that's been on our minds recently because there's been some good reporting, thanks to the New York Times, about some of the scandal-making machinery uh, of a group called Empower Oversight. Jane, what is, what is Empower Oversight? What role are they playing in Washington politics these days? Yeah, so it's a small private company that um, is was started by a couple aides who used to work for Senator Grassley, who is known as sort of a, a champion of whistleblowers. And um, they have set themselves up uh, in order to look like they are representing whistleblowers. But what is their business? Their business is creating witnesses for um, uh Congressional hearings, and they they represent these these witnesses. They train them, they defend them, and produce them. Really, it's I think it's sort of just the latest iteration of what I was talking about in the beginning of the show. The the sort of scandal industrial complex in Washington, and it's not the first private outside business doing this. Um, there are nonprofits doing it, such as the um, Conservative Partnership Institute, which we've talked about before, but. If you sort of trace it back, uh, in some ways it goes back to the Clinton years where, um, you know, you had a at the time a right winger, David Brock, um, who was taking billionaires money in order to sort of kick up scandals around Clinton. And 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 that's where the Trooper Gate stories and eventually the the stories about of Clinton and women came out of this sort of paid for privatized effort to smear the reputation of a, a political opponent. And and it's really developed since then into kind of a, a, a small industry. And so you've got this uh, Empower Oversight now is the latest one. And they're producing the witnesses against uh, Hunter Biden, trying very hard to connect his scandal to President Biden. And so far, they haven't been able to convincingly make the link. But that seems to be where they're heading. 
Given the fact, Susan, that you now have literally a business that is in the business of generating and maintaining and sustaining this scandal, I put scandal in quotes, do you get the sense that this is going to be a dominant feature of the race for the next 15 months? Should we settle in for that? Well, I mean, just as as Benghazi became almost like the background noise and wallpaper of 2016 until it was replaced by the email scandal. In fact, in some ways, actually, Benghazi metastasized into the Hillary Clinton email scandal. People forget that, but that's one of the reasons why, you know, this machinery of investigations in Washington grinds on, because you never know what you'll find. When you put somebody's life under a microscope, eventually you turn things up, even if they're very different than the original scandal. By the way, the Bill Clinton uh, impeachment was a result of exactly that phenomenon in action. The Whitewater scandal originally, which was dealing with uh, investigating the Clintons' finances from back in their time in Arkansas, uh, it it morphed ultimately, and it was the same investigatory team that uh, found out and ultimately ended up investigating Bill Clinton's affair with the former White House intern, Monica Lewinsky. Uh, and I should point out that this is a machinery. There is a machinery of opposition research, paid opposition research, businesses that look into this kind of thing that exists, of course, on, on across the political spectrum in Washington. This is how it works. Uh, you know, we don't have to get into the uh, steel dossier here, but, uh, you know, there's Democratic opposition research firms. There's nonpartisan, you know, opposition research firms that work for businesses. Uh, There's now this firm from Grassley's Age, which is a fascinating new development because you almost seem to be kind of privatizing the work of a congressional investigative uh, committee, which I find to be an interesting new iteration. But the basic principle, I think, is that you put these politicians under the microscope you investigate, you look into every detail of them and their families on their associates' business dealings, and maybe you'll come up with something. And so now here we are full circle, by the way. You had the Hillary Clinton deleted emails. Donald Trump campaigned on it. He said, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. He's talking for years, even throughout his four-year term in the White House, about her efforts to uh, you know, get rid of the server. And where's the server, the DNC server he's talking about? Here we are. Now we have a special counsel investigating Donald Trump this week. And I found that to be one of the most classic pieces of evidence that was turned up in this new superseding indictment by Jack Smith was Donald Trump demanding that they get rid of a server. It's like it's like he's looking at the scripts from past scandals as a how to guide or something. (laughs) Two points about all of this, though, which is it sort of brings to mind to me anyway, the, the very at least I think one of the very best books ever written about American politics, which is Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men, in which one of the characters says, if you look carefully at anyone, there's always something. You can always find some dirt. And this business of finding dirt is is it's it's tawdry and it's nasty. And um and what I think that the point that I think is important in in this is it's really up to the press in a lot of ways to use its judgment and decide, okay, which one of these sort of bits of dirt actually matters, um, you know, and and not get sucked into false whataboutism and false equivalency, and 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 not fall for the 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 Hillary emails when there was nothing there. The fact that there is this kind of industrial complex of of smear artists means that we have to um, up our game a little bit and be even more discerning about what matters. 
I, I love this. I love this call to arms, Jane, but I have to say like the information environment that we live in is that we are bombarded with information. The media has lost its role as a gatekeeper. What I think has been missing is the ability for the the remaining independent, fair-minded media to be able to look critically at these facts. And so you have partisan media on both sides that tend to drive scandals forward. And the problem for all of us is that we don't know uh, what to believe about weaponized facts that are coming to us from partisan sources whose clear, transparent goal is simply to get Joe Biden no matter what. And so that makes it really hard because the answer is we can't say, well, we're just not going to cover that because it's not a scandal. I'm not saying you don't cover it. I think what you do is what we've been doing today, which is you say, okay, it's sleazy what Hunter Biden's doing. But we also say there is no convincing connection to President Biden. It's not an impeachable offense. But have we looked really? And do we really know the answer to that? And I, And my fear is that just partisans are the only ones looking into it, right? And so that's what makes me nervous. Well, except that, I mean, look, there have been, yes, there have been partisan committees, but there have been every reporter in Washington has been looking around at this, Susan. It's not as if the subject is kind of unexamined. Including in the New York Times, you know. So, I mean, we know that a lot of the earliest coverage of Hunter Biden was Ken Vogel's coverage in the New York Times, far from it emanating originally from Breitbart or something like that. But but that connection has not been made. There is, the, the, the witnesses have so far fallen apart. Um, you know, I, I think that is our job to, to separate out the true from the false. That What else could we do? The truth is there's another player in here, which is the public. And if we remember the history of impeachments, let's bring this back to where we started this conversation, which is the very strange fact that we are talking about a possible impeachment of Joe Biden for facts unyet announced. Uh, the truth is that when Bill Clinton was impeached, as we know, by the end of the process, he was actually more popular than he was beforehand because in some weird, ineffable way, the public decided that they didn't think this was up to the level of an impeachment. It didn't deserve that kind of grave treatment. And as we look at the fact that we're now contending with the possibility of the third impeachment proceeding against a president since 2019, I'm curious whether you think that that process itself has begun to occupy a different place in the public consciousness. Susan, what do you think? You know, Evan, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think, unfortunately, that is one of the clear takeaways of, you know, the last decade or so in American politics, which is that uh, essentially this constraint on American presidents that was envisioned in the Constitution now seems to be almost uh, a dead letter. Uh, in, In these very partisan and polarized times, party identity and partisan loyalty uh, have taken on such a role uh, that they seem to have, uh, forgive the, you know, the word here, but they seem to have trumped uh, the vision of the founders that essentially institutional loyalty would cause uh, the legislative branch to be able to exercise meaningful oversight in the case of serious high crimes and misdemeanors over the executive branch. Instead, what you've seen is that a president can survive even a very serious scandal uh, if his party is willing to stick together in the U.S. Senate. You know, it's 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 inconceivable 
uh, in this divided time that you're going to have a huge swing in control of the Senate, such that one party would have a sort of uh, veto-proof or impeachment-proof majority in the Senate. And that means that, practically speaking, it's hard to envision that it ever could happen that you would get uh, this overwhelming, not just a 51-vote majority, uh, but well over 60-vote majority in the Senate to actually convict a president in an impeachment trial. And so functionally speaking, what that means is that a president uh, has very little expectation that no matter what he or maybe someday she does that's terrible, that they would be convicted. And so I think that it's it's scary because it, it leads us even further down the road of the unchecked executive. And if you ask, what's my big fear right now uh, about the American government, about the possibility of Donald Trump winning a second term, it's that. It's the unchecked executive uh, at a moment of extreme crisis, increasing violence in our system. You could have Donald Trump coming into office. He's not going to be worried about being impeached again. He's been impeached twice, and he's still the front runner to be the Republican nominee for president. Uh, and so I just think the constraints one by one are falling by the road. The credibility of our institutions is being diminished. And, you know, again, I absolutely agree with, with Jane that the kind of scandal machinery here that seeks to tar Joe Biden because explicitly Donald Trump is facing this kind of legal peril, uh, it's, it's terrible. For American democracy, Jane. Wow, what do you? <laughs> this is this is bleak sounding. Um, I think one of the, the the other things that that is really a problem with all of this sort of um, overblown scandal mongering is is that it means that Congress is preoccupied with stuff that isn't in the end of the day as important as an awful lot of other things they ought to be doing. I mean, you know, we'll look yeah. at the weather this summer. We've got climate change. We've got actual issues to deal with in this country um, that, I mean, it, you know, that are even more important than sleazy family members of presidents who's, of whom, as we've said, there are many, many of both parties. All right, guys. Well, we're going to be talking about this again, I'm sure. But it's a hard subject. It's an important subject. And uh, frankly, I'm glad I'm doing it with the two of you. So thank you, Jane. And thank you, Susan. It's always great to be able to talk to everyone. I I really value the chance to kind of like hash this through with all of you in real time because it's not an easy thing to 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 know how to grapple with. Until next week, huh? Until next week. This has been the political scene from the New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex Delia, Dan Richards, and Catherine Winter. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Have wonderful weekends, and we'll see you next Friday.